Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Nat Turney, your illustrious host. Illustrious. Illustrious. John, you like that? <laughs> I was, sure. I, sure. You, know, you know me. Yeah, in, my, in, my, in my $5 words. Illustrious, yeah. the, your, your inestimable. Uh, I'm going to stop now. Oh, please. I'm Nat. With me, as always, is my brother, whom I dearly love, John. Say howdy, John. Howdy, John. See? 39 episodes in or 40 or whatever this is now, and we're still not tired of that little shtick, man. It's just a lot of fun. <laughs> so, oh, goodness. Um, we are, man, we're just privileged today. I, I feel like I say this a lot. I hope I never get tired or or get cynical about the quality of guests that we get on this show. I'm always so humbled by the fact that they would take time out of their day to, to talk to a couple of guys like John and me. But today we have the honor of talking to Sarah Cunningham. I'm going to read you her bio that I stole off her website. So if there's any inaccuracies, uh, that's on her. Um, and she can absolutely <laughs> correct them for us. But it's a little lengthy, but I want you guys to really get the width and the breadth of, 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 of the awesomeness of this guest that we're about to have an amazing conversation with. So there you go. Sarah Cunningham is an author, activist, and founder of the nonprofit organization Free Mom Hugs. Her journey is a surprising one that began in conservative Oklahoma when her son Parker came out as gay. As a woman of faith, Sarah wrestled with the news until she began to study, research, and reconcile the two worlds. This journey resulted in her book, How We Sleep at Night. She found herself on a journey from the church to the pride parade, falling in love with the LGBTQIA plus community. In the wake of beautiful glitter-covered hugs and heartbreaking horror stories, the mission of Free Mom's Hug began. Free Mom Hugs began. Simple acts of love and acceptance turned into a viral sensation, and Sarah knew she had the opportunity to lead impactful change. Free Mom Hugs is now a movement across the country and the world. Sarah goes beyond the hug to educate and advocate organizations of all types, including schools and businesses, striving for safe and protected spaces. She has appeared many times with her son Parker on the Today Show and the RuPaul Show and spoke at the 2019 GLAAD Awards. She has been featured in many national publications, including the Washington Post, Women's Day Magazine, and People Magazine. Sarah is currently in partnership with Jamie Lee Curtis, who has purchased the rights to her book and will release a movie based on her story. Wow. An upcoming documentary about the Mama Bears movement by award-winning director Darisha Kai also features Sarah and the Free Mom Hugs movement. Sarah's passion is to change the perspective of the outside world towards this beautiful part of our community so that we are a society, not only... Um, so that we as a society... Now, John, I'm going to booger this up. Eric, you can fix this. So that we as a society not only learn to affirm, but more importantly, celebrate. Her goal is to help parents and children have authentic relationships and understanding for each other using her own experience and education as a guide. Sarah is passionate about connecting with faith, civic, and business leaders in efforts to make the world a kinder, safer place for our LGBTQIA family. She is a gifted and inspired, well, she is gifted at inspiring others to join her in this movement that is sweeping the nation and the world. And now that I have completely butchered your bio, <laughs> please, dear God, Sarah, come and rescue me from my own attempts at okay. garbling your words. Well, first Welcome of all, to the show. We're going to have to work on that bio because we can all go home now. It's like, you know. <laughs> What's like, left to say? You said it all. I, I knew it had been worked on, but we, yeah, we need to work on that. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. It's good, man. There's there's it, it there's a lot of good stuff in there. Well, you're you're right in that fact that a lot has happened in a very short amount of time. And before we get to the meat of this conversation, I have to say that I listened to a podcast of you because I I try to you know get familiar with 
uh, who I'm speaking with, make sure your friends are foe so I can prepare. <laughs> sure, absolutely. And the title alone had me, you had me at uh, This Is Not Church. But Nat, you sound like Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, we had, we first started this. We first started the podcast uh, in our in our private Facebook group that came up once or twice. And so for a little while, I tried to incorporate the occasional "all right, all right, all right" into my into my shtick. But uh, yeah, actually, what's funny is Matthew McConaughey doesn't live very far from me. I'm in West Texas, and he has a ranch out here somewhere, where his grandmother does. And so, yeah, I love Matt. I'll take that comparison. It's not as flattering as the comparison between you and Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> well, well, thank you. But you, you both are handsome. You both are handsome guys. And um, well, but yeah, I can. We, you know, I'll be watching TV, and you know, how commercials will have a voice of a celebrity, and I'll say, "That's Matthew McConaughey," or "That's you know, whoever." And anyway, it's crazy. Immediately, I went to Matthew McConaughey, and I before I even knew what you looked like. So, where's that? That's funny. Well, and then the resemblance stops, said the voice. <laughs> no, it's, you both are handsome fellows. But anyway, thanks for the invitation. Well, thank thanks you so for much. The warm welcome, and just gosh, thanks for just having this conversation. We are at the forefront. You you're really pushing the envelope with what you're doing, and. Yes, of course, I want to be a part of that. And it's time. It's it's time. So thank you. Yeah, it's past time, don't you think? I mean, this is one of these things that uh, we were chatting briefly uh, before we started recording. This is an area that the church has bungled magnificently. I mean, we, we have, a, we have a, a checkered history with marginalized groups in general. Yeah. But for some reason, man, this issue of how we deal with this particular community, it is just so stagnated in some ways. I know there are, I know, I know there are pockets of people who are pushing this forward, but you know as well as anybody else how much resistance you come against, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I say it's the power of fear and ignorance, and I know it well because I lived there for the better part of forty years, and uh, I dragged my family through it. It's a powerful, powerful thing. But I also know the power of love and acceptance and education. And that's a powerful thing equally, if not more. So this is it. This is part of having a conversation and conversations changed my mind. Uh, It changed uh, what I believe and stories matter. And it's all about just education, sharing stories. And just, I think that's the essence of humanity is just, sharing stories and walking along. From, from my own experience, you know, and, and I really want to hear about the origins of free mom hugs uh, first before we move on to other stuff. But um, from my own experience, my, my mind began to get changed by this only when I came into more close proximity to people inside this community as I actually began to have relationships with people who were LGBTQ+, whatever, wherever they found themselves on that spectrum, and then it was so much harder to dismiss their stories. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's, it, what, what do you think about the power of that kind of connection to transform the way people think? Well, um, Jesus was a fan of stories. Yeah. You said you were, things changed for you when you became in close proximity. That means that, and that, yeah. like you, probably, when I was you know, raising, raising our children, we have two children uh, in the church, everyone looked like us. Yeah. There weren't same-sex couples. And I, 
I use the the word gay just for some simplicity. If you don't mind, I do appreciate sure. the acronym LGBTQIA2 Spirit Plus. I appreciate the acronym right. so much, but just for safety, for time's sake, when I say gay respectfully, sure. I mean the spectrum, which I think is beautiful. Yeah. And I want to honor it. Um, when I was raising my children, everyone, every family looked like ours. I didn't know really any gay people. Uh, my husband had a gay brother and he has cousins who are gay that we would visit on occasion. Uh, they live in California. But other than that, I really, I really wasn't around anyone who's gay. So the reason why we're here today is that I have two children. Our youngest son is Parker and he's part of the reason why we're here today. And he was always very feminine. And I thought it was just the different personalities between my two children. And it, but it was always a compromise. He always gravitated towards the glittery, more feminine, softer, uh, pinkish things. Whereas our oldest son was very much, you know, Boy Scouts and just complete opposites, right? Until when Parker was about five years old, he came downstairs in one of my dresses and a pair of my heels and he was prancing around in the kitchen and he danced in that kitchen until his hair was wet with sweat and I had never seen such an expression of joy in his face even at five years old but I had never seen that and it was a long time before I saw that expression again and that was my first inclination like "Mm." and I thought it was okay with people being gay until it was my son and so going through the church, raising our children in a mainstream, evangelical, non-affirming church. The doctrine was Southern Baptist, but I considered myself a Christian just who just happened to go to a Baptist church. We could walk there from where we live. The basement served as a tornado shelter in severe weather. We voted there. I mean, it was a hub of activity in our lives, in the community. We did a lot of really good things inside and outside of that church. And then Parker tried to have the conversation with me at the kitchen sink, uh, on a walk, things like that. And I know that I raised my children in the church. They knew the scripture and we had absorbed this idea that homosexuality was the ultimate of offenses. And each time he tried to have that conversation, I just manipulated it. I didn't allow for it. I, I thought it was just a phase. We didn't even have the vocabulary. Hearing the word homosexual out of my mouth at that time, was crazy. So uh, I just wouldn't have that conversation. And I didn't allow him the vocabulary or the space to even have it. Long story short, when he turned 21, he said, um, Mom, I met someone and I need you to be okay about it. And that was the day that I faced my biggest fear. And that was that I have a gay son. And I thought I was the only mom in Oklahoma with a gay kid. I didn't know where to look for resources, and I did not handle the news well at all. I shamed him with the very best of intentions. I went into a deep depression. I, I heard it said like when, when Parker, when oftentimes when a child comes out of their closet, the parents go into theirs, and that's exactly what happened. And I didn't, I didn't know where to look for resources. And when I did find them, they just weren't helpful. They were more condemning more uh, shameful, and I considered conversion therapy, 
which is still legal, sought out and paid for here in Oklahoma, not far from where we live. Uh, but he was just 15 at, at that time. And at that time, they were really just, you know, learning about the dangers of it. So it wasn't something that I considered for too long. But, you know, you have to think, I thought that my son was going to burn in hell for eternity. And so I was frozen in that fear. And so I feel like I, I just fought for him like my hair was on fire. I was searching the scriptures and just looking for a loophole or something or, you know, burning the sage or just frozen in that fear. I mean, just thinking about it, I get chills because it was so intense. And I went into a depression. And as I tried to share with the peers within our church, remember, we served there for 20 years and we had, we went to funerals. We, you know, they were there for when our children were born and married. And anyway, it was very difficult because they did not know how to minister to us. Nobody had that conversation. And when I, we did try to talk about it, it was like, uh, well, you know, Parker had just given himself over to a depraved mind that he'd been given to the likes of the enemy. And if I accepted him in any form or fashion, almost to the degree of allowing him to stay in the home would be like I was condoning it. And it, that made me just as much of a sinner. You see how absurd that sounds now, but that's... Yeah, it's it's almost even hard to say out loud, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's like you have to come to terms with... But, you know, one thing I've learned on this on this show, and I've heard this from so many people because I've I've, I've expressed these kinds of regrets over things I've said or things I've done when I was more steeped in my evangelical days. And they're like, Nat, you're so good at ex- extending grace to others. Extend some to yourself. Uh, you know, so I would say the same thing for you as well. I mean, we have to recognize that, that, that you know, we were only working with the information we had, yes. you know, and, and responding. I would have responded probably similarly 15, 20 years ago if, some, if one of my children had come out. Um, it would have torn me apart and hopefully led me, you know, to some introspection and some research and some stuff. And I would have come out the other side because, damn it, I love my kids. Of course. But it still would have been a more arduous process than I'll even like to admit now, right? It was difficult. It's probably the most difficult time in my life and in the life of my family. So all that to say, it took some time. And then in about 2014, I was still kind of on the fence, honestly. I was trying to search this matter out on my own, trying to examine why do I believe what I believe, a loving God, uh, how could he condemn my son, and so on and so forth. And it led me to a private online Facebook group for moms with gay kids. And at that time, there were 250 moms. And by this time, we had been alienated from the church because we just didn't know how to have that conversation. They didn't know how to minister to us. And we just didn't know how to make ourselves even available because just the alienation was there and having that conversation. So um, we just kind of pulled away. And I, I felt like I wrote about this in my book, like I wanted a big banner on the front of our house, like, welcome to reality. And you just realize how much of a bubble that you're in. So in 2014, Parker invited me to, uh, my husband and I, to stand with him at the Pride Festival. And that's something I had to search out too, you know. I didn't understand pride and the significance of the event. Even, you know, I didn't even understand the concept or the um, history, you know, the little gay bar in New York City. It meant nothing to me because I didn't understand it. I, I didn't have skin in the game. You know, I knew about it, 
but it's not something we learned about in school or in history or the church or anything like that, of course. So now I understand the significance of Stonewall, of the flag and the rep- what it represents, but I didn't understand pride as a whole. But now basically it's just like um, a community that doesn't have to hide anymore who don't need to be ashamed of who they are. So we stood with Parker at the Pride Festival and that was a pivotal moment in our lives. I had uh, pivotal moments along the way, but that was probably the most significant one. And from there, I just got plugged into the community. I started uh, volunteering and just with like Second Chance Prom, the Pride Board, and just trying to get plugged in. And I went to a PFLAG meeting that I, I thought was a PFLAG meeting for high schoolers and families like ours, but it turned out to be for the adult transgender community. Now, up until that time, I don't think I'd ever been in the same room with a transgender person that I know of, but I stayed and I listened to their stories and I cried hot tears in the car outside of that meeting because I heard their stories and I thought, these are beautiful, misunderstood people. And so... I just started advocating because the more I was learning, the more I felt accountable to what I was learning about laws. You know, Parker can still be discriminated against in housing, healthcare, even in a public space for being gay. It's absurd to think about, but my straight son has more rights than my gay son. So I'm accountable to those things. It's ludicrous when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, I recall a few years back when the Supreme Court made their ruling um, how many of my Christian friends were just up in arms, you know, they were just beside themselves that the sanctity of marriage has been eroded, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, and then, you know, I made a comment on Facebook as, cause I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a firebomb thrower. I like to, I like to stir up the stuff if I can. A rebel rouser is what we call. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I like to, you know, I like to stir up the shit once in a while. And so, uh, <laughs> You know, I remember saying, listen, heterosexuals have, have done a damn fine job of eroding the sanctity of marriage for hundreds, if not thousands of years. <laughs> we don't need any help from the gay community. We've done just fine by ourselves. Thank you very much. And then I, I recall there was that county clerk, I think, in Kentucky yeah. or someplace who, you know, went on her little sort of moral high horse and refused to issue marriage certificates. And, you know, when it comes out that she's on her third or fourth marriage, I'm like, yeah, you truly believe in the sanctity of marriage, lady. You know, and that's not to throw shade at people who've been divorced. That's not what I'm saying. But it is to say that for somebody like that who would, you know, who would stand on her definition of the biblical definition of marriage, uh, she wasn't living it, you know, and then she has the audacity to, 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 to continue to discriminate, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's yeah. it's crazy. So yeah, um, I've been a I've been an advocate at least you know even before even before I started moving toward full affirmation for that community um, at least as a as a as a matter of civic discourse. I, I never have understood why we discriminated against anybody in that in that in that realm. That that just to me seems ludicrous to let the government decide who can and cannot get married. And so to me, that was less a religious issue and more of a, more of a civic government issue, you know, an individual liberty question. Yeah, I think so understanding, like I'm the least politically minded person you'll ever meet, but I am seeing a pattern and um, you'll probably laugh, but it's, it's for, you know, some of it is just for political gain. It's same with the bathroom bills, if you know, recall that. But at the time, 
when Parker came out, it was just when that was at the height of conversation and uh, the bathroom debate, the same-sex marriage, um, the Chick-fil-A debate, all of that was around. And like in my workplace, I worked um, for my employer probably 15 years before they even knew I had a gay son. Nobody talked about it. I couldn't change the conversation at the water cooler because I didn't feel like I had a voice or, or, you know, like I would be out of line. And you certainly didn't. I was raised of the generation where you didn't question authority. You didn't talk about sex or money. And that's how we got into this mess. And once you see it here, you see it everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. So what was the impetus then for the creation? I guess it wasn't really intentional, but how did, how did free mom hugs come about originally then? Yeah. In 2014, we stood with Parker at the pride festival and then I just got plugged in. I just started just helping out where I could and meeting the community and falling in love and really witnessing a beautiful spirit filled community. And so, uh, I made a homemade button that said, uh, free mom hugs and I pinned it to my sundress. And in 2015, I went to a pride festival and the first hug that I offered was to a beautiful young girl who said it had been four years since she got a hug from her mother because she's a lesbian. And that's when I knew, I said, well, here's a hug. I'm a mother and I'm not letting go until you do. And that was the start from that experience. Uh, we started the nonprofit Free Mom Hugs. I'm I'm not the first mom to offer hugs at a Pride Festival, but from that experience. Um, but I heard horror stories that day about, you know, couples living out of their car because um, they weren't able to go home. Uh, individuals separated from their church families and just devastated um, when they come out to the youth pastor and sent home from Falls Creek. It's just was devastating. It's haunting, really. And Again, conversion stories, conversion therapy stories. And to be clear, I want your listeners to know conversion therapy is any therapy, practice, or prayer that will try to change a gay person straight, plain and simple. It can be used in shame, it's uh, in churches, in uh, therapy sessions, anything that would try to change individuals sexual identity or sexual orientation and those are things I had no clue about either sexual identity and sexual orientation Uh, who knew right whereas gender identity and sexual orientation gender identity is do you feel like a boy do you feel like a girl do you feel like both or neither one everyone has a gender identity and that's all right had no concept of that prior to learning and then Sexual orientation is, who do you want to be with? That's orientation. And you can't change those things. It's dangerous if you try it. Harmful at best. You have suicide rate skyrocketing, self-harm, at-risk behavior when you try to change those things. So as we need to allow our children to show us who they are and trust them when they tell us or when they're on that journey, and help them. Yeah, totally. Uh, similar to Nat, you know, I have, I think we all have that story. We have those stories where we, at some point, come to a crossroads and we have to make a decision on which way we're going to go. And um, for me, uh, being raised in the same household in the same uh, town that Nat was raised in, we were we went to a fairly conservative church. Um, and 
I was, uh, as well as Nat, uh, we were, we're both musicians. Um, so my story goes that about 17, my, our, our music teacher asked me if I would be interested in playing bass in a, in a musical in a local theater. And I, I had no clue anything about theater. I'd never done theater, but the chance to play music, sure, absolutely. I want to play music. So I said yes. And so I ended up in this small theater group in a, a small town outside of Eureka, California, in Ferndale, and uh, met some just amazing human beings. That's all I knew. Was, uh, these are just really cool people. It was a community that was super open, super loving, uh, accepting of just everybody. And it wasn't probably for quite a while that I started realizing that I'm, I'm hanging around with a lot of gay people. Um, because that wasn't the important thing when what was going on at that point. But like Nat says, once you are, once you connect with these people of any marginalized group that you've been told are so horrible and depraved, and you know, we can make that list go on and on and on, right? And then you realize, no, they're just, they're just like me. They have concerns. They have fears. They have trepidations. They have. They, they want they want acceptance they want to be loved they don't like things that you don't like they like things that you like and then it just starts breaking down walls right it just starts breaking down all these walls of you know, I'm sorry no other way to say it, of all this bullshit that we've been that we've been holding on to that tells you that you need to stay separated from these people you know fast forward a little bit later you know I am very openly accepting of gay people, but I start to realize that I'm not voicing that acceptance in any way, shape, or form. I'm still going to a church that's not affirming. You know, we have the whole love the sinner, hate the sin, right? And uh, so it was a there was a point where I just had to say, no, I can't do this anymore. I have to stand up. I have to start voicing my my disagreements with the church, and that's part of this process for me. I don't know. Um, how else to say it other than, you know, I'm late to the game of trying to be some kind of ally. And I hope that at some point that people will see me that way. But, uh, we really appreciate what, you know, the stuff that you're doing. I don't have a question in any of this <laughs> other than I just feel the need to, you know, do some, do some explanation on my part to say that I understand. I totally understand where you're coming from. I totally understand the, even as you're starting to accept some of this, right? And you're starting to say, okay, it's, it's, I can accept this about my son or I can accept this about my friend. I still don't know how to step up and say, okay, well, what's the next thing I need to do to become vocal? And because there's that fear in the back, right? That you're going to get judged, that people are going to call you out and you got to get past that idea. Okay. This isn't about me. And I have to get to that point where it's like, this isn't about me. This is about people who are literally dying because they're just wanting to be who they are. Well, I think you're doing it. I mean, you're doing it. You're, you're using what you have, where you're at and who you're with. And I mean, that's the voice and we can, there's things that we can do. Like if you're not vocal, if you don't feel like being visible, well, then put a rainbow button on your lapel or a rainbow pencil yes. in your right. cup, you know, if you're in working with students in any way, there's a, lots of ways to, to be an ally without, you know, demonstrating out in front of the conversion therapy ministry building. Right. So, sure. and there's sure. times for all of that. There's times to be loud. There's times to be front and center and there's time to allow a platform for our 
gay brothers and sisters to have their voice, but there's a lot of places I can go where my transgender friends cannot. Right. Okay, you see, I can go to a Baptist general convention and hear how they're going to, you know, handle, you know, save uh, girls sports, right? But yeah, though I have taken a transgender friend to a Baptist general convention. There you go, girl. <laughs> we, 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 we sat in the back. We sat yeah. in the back. But like you said earlier, uh, Nat, is that we have to consider where we were raised, what we had access to. Surprisingly, I see more acceptance in the older generation because I believe they've seen more. They've experienced more. It's my age group that is making life miserable for the gay community. And uh, those in the healthcare, they uh, seem more accepting because they just experience more. They see more. But I tried a concept like you. Um, in the beginning, I tried to get my, my straight friends with my gay friends and have a conversation at the table. Right. Well, the problem is yeah. I couldn't get my my Christian straight friends to the table. Right. Sure. So that didn't work. Yeah. So, and then I tried to use this free mom hugs platform, and I always thought it would be the bridge between the church and the gay community. Well, I couldn't get the church to even budge to even have a conversation. When I say church, I mean non-affirming churches. There are some wonderful affirming churches, and we can talk about that in a minute. But so when that it's not working and I'm not opposed to do that. And I still have opportunities to speak to churches who, when the pastor's son comes out, then all of a sudden they want to start having a dialogue and that's wonderful. And I do that. But then as an organization, we just started pouring into the community and being that loving presence in the lives of those who need it the most and equipping them, equipping their parents, equipping our chapter leaders to be that presence to advocate, to educate, to be visible, to be vocal has been much more fruitful. And if you understand, you've been in church long enough, you understand that language. It's fruitful. It's bearing fruit. It's healing. It's lasting. It's empowering. And so that has convinced me that that's where we need to be. And until we can get the non-affirming church to the table, I, I don't have... I don't engage. I don't have the energy. I don't have the bandwidth. And it's, I'm saving my pearls. Yeah. No, you're not wrong about that. I mean, I, I was, as you were talking, that's exactly what I was thinking was, I mean, you have to put your energies where they're best spent, right? Um, there's a finite amount of that. So, but from my perspective as a pastor of a small church in a little town in West Texas, you're having an impact. So uh, when our church is barely two years old now, and the first summer that we were at church, we, we, sent, we sent some of our folks to our local Pride Parade Festival. And we, uh, we wore shirts that said free mom and free dad hugs. And uh, we thought we were super original, but apparently we were just standing on your shoulders. <laughs> That's okay. But, um, own it. Just own it. You're okay. <laughs> but, you know, the people that participated, and sadly I wasn't able to do, I wasn't able to be there for that, for, for logistical reasons. But the people that came back from that event just touched deeply. I can't even, I, I'm not even, I don't have the words to articulate. Uh, my daughter was one of them and she, she came back and she's intermittently weeping and laughing and crying and smiling. And, um, it was heartbreaking and affirming. And, and so you hear those stories, you know, I love that you said, you know, Jesus loves stories and Jesus told stories. I think that's the way we connect best is through stories. And so if, if nothing else, 
we want to provide a platform where these stories can be told and these these beautiful human beings can be seen as less two-dimensional characters, you know, or caricatures of 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 something that 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 we feel like we need to somehow fight against. And as human beings who are, you know, complicated and complex and deserving of of being understood and yes. seen. So your your story has has an impact, even in far flung West Tex- West Texas, and I'm sure up where John lives, the same can be said. So I don't know. I, I vacillate between pessimism and optimism, if, if I'm being really honest, because there are days when it just feels like, you know, not enough progress is being made, and a, and and then there are days when I feel like, hey, we're turning a corner. Um, <laughs> so yes. yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure you have the. I'm sure you have that same experience. Where some days it feels like, man, we're really making some headway, and then some days you feel like you get knocked back a decade or two. Yeah, well, to the same degree, when you're in that bubble of a mainstream conservative, non-affirming, where everybody looks alike that bubble, to the same degree, I can find myself in a bubble over here with everyone's affirming, everything is moving forward, we're walking and participating in the faith. And then just two days ago, I hear about a conference, um, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but like 300,000 youth attended. And it's non-affirming, it's like dangerous. And it's like 300,000 youth were in attendance well, probably within their families. Let's let's be realistic. But it's like, oh my God. That make that stuff makes me tremble. And I think, oh, okay. All right. There's still work to do. And in Oklahoma, like I said, we have conversion therapy. It's still legal, sought out, unpaid for. I drive by there every day on my way into the office. And every day I see cars in the parking lot. I see the lights on. And they're only doing conversion therapy. Do you know what that does? That tells me someone in that space is going through conversion therapy or the, the, uh, the staff there are planning something, an, an event, or they have local events in which we've demonstrated before. Yes, it's overwhelming when you think about it, but I mean, you just are accountable to what you know. And sadly, uh, as, we, as we find ourselves in these bubbles, it seems like things are moving right in the, in the right d- direction. Uh, Facebook does a really good job of just reminding us so quickly when, from just one, what, what considers, what I would consider an innocent post, right? Like you said, like, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, wear a rainbow button on your lapel. So you do something like during Pride Month or during, um, you know, National Coming Out Day or something, right? You post something very basic, very mild, like maybe a ring around your photo that says, you know, this is National Coming Out Day and the, horrific language you hear from people that you thought were your friends. And now you're wondering, should I be their friends? Should I even be friends with these people? Because some of the hate and anger and disgust that comes from disgusting comments that comes from these people is just like, it's like, oh man, we have so far to go. To the same degree, like I could post something like that and everybody... There's no... I from the not From the church that we were plugged into for 20 years... I, I don't talk to anyone unless their kid comes out. No one yeah. from those circles of serving yeah. 20 years in, in helping with the women's ministry, helping with the youth. I had great connections and no one. It's like crickets until someone they know or love comes out to them. And that's fine. That's okay. I just got an invitation to um, an event for a non, non-affirming church. And I think... Do, 
the friend who invited me, as lovely as they are, says, do you not know me? Do you think I'm going to go and support something? Like, why would you give your tithe and your time and your energy into a non-affirming place that's not going to celebrate your child or harm harm them with the very best of intentions? And like, Nat, you have a church there? Please tell me you have a rainbow something somewhere. Please tell me that you're allowing the gay community to help in the nursery if they feel called to, or uh, a gender-neutral bathroom if you have transgender congregants that are there, or even if they feel, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, you do. And you know what? what's interesting is, is the planting of this church has made me confront my prejudices faster and more profoundly than anything else I've ever done. And so if I'm being really honest with you, I've always been, I've always loved people. All right. I don't, I, I, and I, I don't, I wrestled with that part of me that was condemning towards people in that, in that community. Um, and I never liked it. So I was never vocally yeah. anti anything, but I certainly wasn't outwardly affirming either. So, but I had some good friends and I have some really great friends now who are, who are gay, married, same sex um, unions, whatever you want to call them. And they were the ones who forced me to confront my prejudices. Because what was I going to do with them? What was I going to do with that family that I know are raising amazing kids and they're doing wonderful things and, oh my God, they happen to be two women. What was I going to do? Was I going to create a space that was safe for them? Or was I going to carve out yet another space that was safe for, you know, white, cisgendered, straight men and women? And then I came to the conclusion at some point that I no longer gave a shit what those Mm -hmm. people thought. They have plenty of places, man. They can go to any church in my town and feel welcome and included and they can serve and do whatever they want to. And I'm one of a couple places in a city of 100,000 people where people can come and genuinely be accepted and affirmed and celebrated for who they are. And I'd rather have 10 people in my congregation like that than a 1,000 who are ugly and hateful. And So anyway, all of that to say, yes, and we've taken some backlash for that. And, that, and that's fine. I don't, you know, I, at, at first I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm like, you can get a little weird about this. And I word as a little bit of a badge of honor. And I'm like, that's a little narcissistic. I'm experiencing a, a millionth of the kind of pushback that these people get every day of their lives. And I have the option to, to be vocal about it or not. That's my privilege. And I'm, I recognize that privilege. And like John, you know, I'm just no longer content to, to be silent on the subject anymore. Yeah. And I'm still learning, by the way. So I'm sure there are things that I say and don't articulate exactly correctly. I hope you, I hope people hear the heart behind it. No, I do. I do. I feel the love. I feel the love, Nat and John. And I'm, that's, I mean, or you wouldn't be here. And, you know, to what you said, Nat, about uh, some backlash, you will, I mean, it, you will receive, no doubt, even more. And, Oh, sure. Absolutely. And to the same degree, like I, I've had threats made. I've had my car vandalized, but I don't, what I experience as an ally, as an advocate, an accidental activist is pales in comparison to what the community yeah, has to do every day. But you just providing a place, it, it speaks volumes and it's a safe place and you have your work ahead of you to so much healing and you have adults coming out late in life with internal homophobia. You have survivors of conversion therapy, probably from churches right around the corner from you. You know, I mean, you have your work 
cut out for you and God bless you. And you're on the right side of history, but you have a lot of work to do. And I, I try to encourage, you know, my followers tithe to your affirming churches. And let's talk about affirming versus non-affirming. This is the question I get asked all the time. What is the difference between affirming and non-affirming? Affirming and affirming church means that that church will honor same-sex marriage as holy and celebrate the gay community. Very simple. Those are yes or no questions. If you're looking for a church, you can ask those in authority. Do you honor same-sex marriage just as holy as a straight marriage? Do you celebrate the gay community? Will you allow my transgender friend to work in the nursery if they feel so called? Those are yes or no questions. And if they even dance around that or are vague, they're not affirming. Non-affirming churches certainly does not recognize same-sex marriage uh, or even um, acknowledge it and will not honor or will celebrate the gay community. They'll tolerate the community and tithe and the service. Uh, there's certainly no, there's a difference between tolerating and celebrating. Celebrating, when I, when I saw people celebrate my son before I could even kind of tolerate him, I mean, I'm just being transparent here. It, it opened my eyes and there's something to celebrate. They're a beautiful dynamic, a gift to this world. I do believe that. I do believe the gay community is a gift to this world. And it's to be celebrated. And I pray that we won't need free mom hugs to the degree that we need it now. It's interesting. I'll tell you two quick stories because I have two. I mean, one is about a friend who, you know, and I'm not naming names because they may listen to this and I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to name drop. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, but I have two examples of friends who have responded very differently to this question. One whose son came out a little later in life. But um, if we're being honest, um, I knew, I knew this guy's son when he was, a youngster and we all had, we all had our, our, our suspicions, you know, but anyway, he comes out and this dad who is pretty conservative, you know, man, the next thing I know, he's rocking a free dad hug shirt at a gay pride festival. He is um, going to his son's drag events cause he's really into drag and he is at every turn supportive and loving and affirming of his son. So contrast that though with another friend of ours whose parents had a a daughter come out and it's the exact opposite story, you know, and they've cut Mm -hmm. her off completely and she's attempted suicide a couple times and she is heartbroken and torn up over the fact that her parents are just convinced she's going to burn in hell forever because she's somehow, you know, in their mind, she's chosen Mm -hmm. this quote unquote Mm -hmm. lifestyle. Um, And it is weird. Here's what's interesting how even the language that we used to use around this community has, has changed, isn't it? When I hear the word lifestyle, I bristle now, you know, like, or the gay agenda. What the hell is the gay agenda? You know, <laughs> right. get yeah. a job, eat some dinner, watch some Netflix, hang out. That's the gay agenda, right? Get married, have a home, have a family. Um, it, it's just strange. But even it's just strange to me that, that there's still people who, who assume or presume that anybody gets to choose mm-hmm. to whom they're attracted as though I could suddenly decide tomorrow that I think John's a sexy dude. Oh, wait, that got weird. <laughs> First of all, you are a sexy dude. But you know what I'm saying? I, like, like, I, don't know a, I don't know a single heterosexual human being who, could, who, who, who you could convince to suddenly compel themselves to be attracted to someone no. of the same sex. 
And yet they seem to think that that should happen the other way around. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it has to do with sex. I couldn't get past the same sex part of it. Not that yeah. I imagine my son having sex. No one, no parent should do that with the child. <laughs> no, no, no. Poke yeah. up my mind's eye. But Stop it. Just the thought of, of, you know, the physical act of same sex, honestly. And it just, to me, that was the line that crossed that. That was the, the spiritual divide that crossed the line. That well, what if he, what if he just uh, chooses abstinence? What if he is celibate? What if he falls in love? What if he marries a woman? But I mean, you know, all of those things try to bargain. Yeah, but but doesn't really love her. But that's okay because most marriage is that way, right? So (laughs) we have a lot of people coming out late in life because they do. They marry, think that that's the thing to do, and then they. I I have a lesbian uh, couple just reach out to me and one of their fathers just came out at 70 years old and wanted me to send a care package to him. We send care packages during COVID. Seventy. And I think oh my gosh, the whole whole life was spent hiding and being ashamed. And oh my gosh, my heart just sank. But we sent him a care package. (laughs) Good. Well good. Yeah, the, those stories are heartbreaking, and then and then when you hear about somebody, what's what's interesting is when you hear the story about somebody doing, quite frankly, what they should do. You know, um, it's a little sad that I'm so happy that this that this father did what any decent <laughs> good father should do. Um, it's like woohoo, we're celebrating someone, but you know, but the but the fact is that the predominant culture doesn't do that. And so let, let's talk about this for a second, then, because the root of so much of this. Well, maybe the root of all of this is a complete misunderstanding and misapplication of Scripture. Um, and there's no greater tool, I think, of damage and harm than someone who does the wrong thing but utterly convinced that they're right and, said, and that they have the moral high ground. So you mentioned something earlier about a, a film that was coming out called 1946. And I think the subtitle was The Bible as a mm-hmm. Sacred Weapon or something along those lines. Um But, you know, that was one of the things that started to turn a corner for me, too, was digging into the scholarship and finding out that the word homosexual didn't even appear in our English Bibles until 1946. Mm -hmm. What did we do with that word that Paul used, by the way, one time in Scripture ever? How was that concept viewed prior to 1946? I mean, I have my opinions, but but have you dug into that very much? Well, I'm glad that you asked that. It's an excellent question. There are... Uh, scholars and theologian who are doing the work. For one, Kathy Baldock, and I'll send this information to you so you can have it for your followers. But Kathy Baldock, she's done the work historically, scientifically, scripturally, biblically, that no matter where you stand, to not have a better understanding on it. And they uh, had gone, she and another, another colleague had gone to the scriptures, the Oh my gosh, what do they call that? Where they go to the vault and they pull out the original manuscripts and they spent hours and weeks and and months spending time pouring over these, you know, sacred manuscripts. And they found a letter, and I'm gonna botch this story, but what they found is a letter from a pastor from Canada, and he sent a letter to those who were uh writing for the the New Testament. And he said, I don't think that this word means what, what you're saying. And the word was homosexual and that the connotation of it would cause great harm 
and it just so happened this pastor in Canada is gay. And he's, he wrote a letter and they found that letter. And so they were able to, he's still alive and they were able to interview him. And again, I'm probably botching the series of events here, but through the work that they've done, it will debunk everything that we were taught or even alluded to or absorbed how we had been duped with the very best of intentions that homosexuality mis- misunderstood, mis- I want to say misdiagnosed. That's not the right word. Yeah, I mean, misunderstood, misunderstood for sure. Misinterpreted. That's yeah. the key word, misinterpreted. And so, but you go through this like, for example, men having sex with, with children. Of course that's wrong. Of course that's not. But to equate a homosexual to that is wrong. It's not how it was intended to be. And therefore, uh, it just got twisted along the way. And Kathy Balduck and the 1946 movie that's being made will explain all of that. And I think that's going to crack, split the church wide open. I, I hope so. I mean, the, the, the little bit that I've dug into this, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not literate in either yeah. Greek or Hebrew. And so I don't have the ability to go back to original texts and look, but I have friends yeah. who are. And so we've talked about this at length. And um, one of my friends, Caleb, has done, written a couple of really, really good extensive articles on on the misuse. And really what it comes down to is a handful of clobber yeah. passages the within the scriptures. Um, none of which, by the way, and dear listener, please hear this, none of which ever came out of the mouth of Jesus, ever. So if you want to know what Jesus had to say on the subject, he said nothing. So um, for me as a Christian, that puts mm-hmm. that to rest. I sometimes really don't really care maybe what Paul or Peter or James said. They weren't Jesus. If Jesus had an issue with it, he should have brought it up. But, but, even, but even within the context of what Paul writes in his epistles and when he talks about this issue, number one, he uses a word that up to that point had not been used, I believe, anywhere in contemporary Greek even. The most, a lot of scholars believe that, that Paul invented this word for this thing because um, there was a Greek word for homosexual and he didn't use it. Yes. And so the issue at play, according to most of my friends, and I tend to lean towards this way of thinking, is not the issue of same-sex attraction or same-sex sexual activity, but it was power dynamics. Uh, it was the fact that within Greek and Roman culture, it was very common for older men to abuse mm-hmm. young boys. And that was part of not just normal cultural power dynamics, but also even religiously mm-hmm. that happened with temple prostitution and other things like that. So I, I do, I, I have no issue with saying, yeah, okay, um, that's wrong. <laughs> that, that, we don't tolerate yes, that. We don't, yes. we don't allow people who wield that kind of power to exert that power over people who don't have it. And I really think that's what Paul and his contemporaries were most concerned with. You can deal with the Jewish side of this in the Torah by considering how patriarchal that yes. society was. And, and by understanding that for a man to allow himself to be united with another man in that way would have been an abomination for him simply because yeah. he's not a woman. And so there's that dynamic that goes into it. It's, you know, the, the word that's used for abomination can be translated, you know, almost as like, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's also the same, it's the same word they use for eating, you know, shellfish and pork and mixing fabrics. And so there's, there's all this history tied up into it that if we're willing to look, and that's what we have to be willing to do, church, is we have to be willing to take a step back, approach this with some humility, 
and maybe admit that we've gotten a few things wrong and allow ourselves to be taught a few things here and there. There's still room yes. for growth, but we appreciate people like you who are who are forcing sometimes forcing that issue to come to the forefront. That's that's maybe one of your um, one of your greater achievements is just bringing this out constantly. So, well, I mean, I would I would just I would just challenge, and, and you know, I don't even slightly pretend that this would this is going to happen just because we say it, but I would just challenge pastors in general to just take a step back and actually do the work to find out what exactly the Bible was saying and why it said it the way it said it. And, and don't, take, don't take some class you took in seminary 25 years ago as the, the ending gospel on what exactly was being said there. Look, do the work. Take some time and do some scholarly work. But on top of that, just realize that more than anything else, what the Bible and what Jesus was asking us to do is to love one another. Jesus spent more time with people outside of the church than he ever did with people inside the church, right? He spent more time showing love towards people who were marginalized and othered. But we want to spend all of our time pushing them out closing the doors behind them outside and pretending like they don't exist because we want to live in a world where what we think is normal is is the only way to do stuff. And I mean, it, it, doesn't it just keep coming back to this idea that we need to step outside of the walls of the church, become the church to the people who are not in our church and to learn through having conversations with these people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Nat, I appreciate what you, what you said. You put it in better context than I ever could. I'm not a scholar or a theologian and the, the history behind, and we just, we know so much more than we did then, even when it was being translated. Yeah. And so, and John, what you said, just search the matter out and you'll see. And if nothing else, if nothing else, consider the testimony of a gay Christian. Because we, yeah, exactly. we were Absolutely. taught that you couldn't be gay, you couldn't be Christian, and a, a gay person certainly couldn't profess um, their love for, for Christ verbally. We were taught that. Well, I've heard some testimonies that are profound from gay Christians. And that ultimately is what convinced me that you can be gay, you can be Christian. And there's some amazing books out there now from scholars and theologians that it's just unmistakable. It's undeniable and it has convinced me. I have determined in my own mind that. Yeah, it, it was an eye-opener because I, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of, of writing yeah. a book of my own and Honestly, just the act of saying that out loud keeps me writing I'm it. Damn thing. Um, so nag me. I'm I'm meeting with my writing coach in okay. 45 minutes to continue the process. So, um, but I was I'm writing a chapter on reading the Bible in context because that's part of my deconstruction process. Was like I never we spend our lives proof texting. So you you know uh, my favorite phrase somebody used once, and so I've, I've of course I've stolen it was. Um, the, the old McDonald approach, which was here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse. <laughs> and there's a verse for every occasion, you know? I mean, you want, you want, a, you want a Bible that condemns homosexuality? I'll, I'll show you. I can find that verse for you. 
You want a Bible that affirms the, you know, slavery? Mm-hmm. I can show you that too. I want a Bible that seems to approve of, of genocide and misogyny. Yeah, it's all there if you want to just cherry pick a few things. Um, but what was interesting was that, first of all, original documents, we don't have those. We can go back to our oldest documents that we have and we can go back to the, the text that probably Martin Luther used when he, when he began to, to transcribe his, his version of the Bible into the vernacular of his time. And the, the word homosexuality wasn't there. It was translated into German. And I, I don't remember the German. I wrote it down, but it, it, it translates to boy abuser. Pedophile. So this was a this was a this was a a charge that Paul leveled against people who abused their positions of power. Period. Because I don't know that even in Paul's day there would have been any such concept as a loving consensual same sex union. It would have been outside of his realm of experience entirely. And so for to act as though he was speaking to that is so anachronistic. It's not even funny. And so, that, but we do that all the time. We 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 pull these verses written you know, in the first century, you know, pluck them out of their time and place and drop them into, you know, 21st century America and say, look, clear, Paul, the Bible clearly says. Yeah, The Bible right. doesn't very clearly say much of anything. Um, a lot of it is shrouded in, in cryptic and symbolic language. But regardless, the, the, the big stumper for me is I stop at what Jesus has to say about this stuff. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Paulian. You know, I'm not a Peterian. Is that a thing, John? <laughs> Someone who, uh, you know, and Paul well, himself was like, was adamant that like, listen, no, you guys stop squabbling over who you follow, Apollo or Paul or who this, we follow Jesus. And so at the end of the day, what would Jesus do? Let, let's take this, let's take this story, for example. What would, what would Jesus do if instead of a woman caught in the act of adultery, it was a homosexual couple and they dragged them before the feet of Jesus and said, listen, the Bible says we should stone these. What, what do you say? Would Jesus change his tune and suddenly go, well, nah, for these guys, yeah, let's get the rocks out. Or would he say, no, where neither no, do no. I condemn you. Let, you know, so the, uh, I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm just over, I'm over the religious hand wringing, yeah. you know, and, and somehow feeling like we're responsible for other people's relationships yeah, with God. So, well, I think yeah. that, um, yeah, I love a lot about what you said, and, can, and I'm so glad that you're writing about it. And I am seriously going to nag you like a mother to write it. Please do. Thank you. But I think that <laughs> one thing that I just, I want to be crystal clear on is that I don't think homosexuality is a sin any more than me being straight nope. is a sin. Nope. I don't equate it to eating shellfish exactly. or wearing wool or, you know, whatever they are being right. adult, an adulterer. I think it is a gift from God. And I think shame is the sin. I think when we shame each other, even ourselves, that that is the sin. And um, I think Jesus makes it it very clear that we are to love one another. Well, and to be clear, um, when I I equated those things from the Old Testament, uh, Jesus affirmed those weren't sins either. So all, the only point I was trying to make was that if, when, we're, when we're categorizing something as an abomination, uh, we need to understand the framework of that conversation. What were the, you know, we, see, we hear the word abomination in English and we think the most disgusting, foul thing you could ever do. And for the, for the, you know, in the Hebrew, that word is less about something that is super offensive to God and something that's just like, eh, we, yeah. don't, we don't do that. And again, go to the New Testament and Jesus affirms that none of that is, a, is an issue. 
It was those were always external laws. Those were always man-made. Had nothing to do with God's. I don't believe yeah. had anything to do with what God wanted or intended for mankind. So yeah, no, I, that's why I don't. You know, even even the example of 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 what Jesus would do with a homosexual couple brought before him that that's problematic as well. Although the Jewish people would have seen what they were mm-hmm. doing as sinful and would yeah. have insisted that there be some kind of retribution for that. Um, but that's why the whole, you know, I, th- the language of the church that is tolerant, that's the language of the church that's tolerant, isn't it? It's, you know, well, their, their sin's no right. worse than my sin. I can't judge them any harsher than I would. And and I would argue that's a step forward, I guess. It's better than yeah, an outright condemnation, but implicit. In, sure. Right, but implicit in that is still... Yeah, but you're sinful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like what you're doing is still wrong. So well, yeah, and and in, in most churches that, and in church, you know, in the, in the churches that I've been in up until when I left the church, it's it's pretty, it's still pretty damn harmful to to do that. And I think you know any church that's worth anything needs to be able to look at itself and say, okay, well, this is still. This is still a hurtful stance. This is, I mean, yeah, I, I'm going to tolerate you. You're allowed to sit in my congregation. You're allowed to, to sing the songs with us. I'm pretty sure if you were to really push the pastor, they probably shouldn't be taking communion in that church. They would probably say that that's not okay. And they, you know, God forbid they ask to be on the worship team or, you know, run the nursery <laughs> or right. teach Sunday school. Or even get up in front of the, the uh, congregation and speak, right? That none of that's going to happen at all, period. But don't you think, John and Sarah, I'll, I'll lob this to both of you. Don't you think there's a sense in which that middle road is sometimes more sinister? Oh yeah, because Absolutely. at least when somebody is outright condemning of you, you know where you stand. Okay, that's not a safe place for me. I'm not going to go there. You can be lulled into a false sense of security in a place that is speaking in terms of inclusion and tolerance and feel like, hey, I might have actually found a safe space and then be caught totally off guard when they inevitably whack you with something, right? And I think that's where, like what Sarah was saying, I think, you know, as you're entering these churches, either as as a gay person or as an ally, the questions you need to ask if you're entering a new church that you don't know, ask those questions that have only yes or no answers to. And if they can't answer yes, you know, it's like, are you affirming? Do you affirm that a same-sex marriage is holy? It's a union. And if they can't answer that with a yes, and they give you some kind of flat answer of no that doesn't really give you an answer, you know the answer is no. You know it's no. And and they're either afraid to say it because you know, to be perfectly honest, you know, everybody that sits down on those chairs, right, is going to potentially give them money. And, you know, they're happy to take money from people that they don't, that they think are going to hell. I guarantee you they're happy with it. They're okay (laughs) with it. I'll I'll take all of it I can get, John. And uh, I know there's a, I know there's a website out there that uh, I heard that. I'm just ignoring what you said. (laughs) Thank you. That was worth ignoring. There was, there was Uh, nothing useful about that. (laughs) and, And I don't have the name of the website, but I know there is at least one or two websites out there that will let you know if there are affirming churches in your area. Church clarity um, that, is one. Yeah. Yes, I think that's, yes. The, that's, yes. that's the one I'm thinking of, yeah. And um, if you are, you know, if you're listening to this and you are an affirming church and you are not on that or you have not put on your website that you are affirming, you need to fix that now. You absolutely need to fix that now. You need to let people know that you're a safe space. And if you're not willing to take that step and put that out there on your website, in your brochures, whatever the hell else you hand out to your people, then you are not an affirming church. Period. 
and you are not creating a safe space for these people. And you absolutely, if you want to get even remotely, use that that title in your in your church, or you tell that to people. You absolutely need to put it at, so people in the public can see it. And if you're not willing, you're not affirming. Period. Off my soapbox. <laughs> I'm lighting a candle and I'm raising my hand to you, Juan. Oh, okay. We can all go home now because you just said it. Yeah, we just yeah. had church up in yeah. here. Where's the tithe bucket? Mm. I'd like to. John took us to church. Take me to church. Yeah, that was good. But the, uh, the what was interesting was I had a, I had a couple, a friend of mine who were a part of my church that we planted. But about a year or two before that, I was on staff at a different church, and and the uh, one of the one of the women reached out to me, who's not religious at all. She's just, but her wife is, and so she said, you know, hey, I don't care about church one way or the other. But my wife is, 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 is missing this part of her life. Would we be safe? Is essentially what she said. Would we be safe in your church? And, you know, what I had, and this was not the church that I ran. It was just a church I was on staff at the time. And, and what I had to tell her was, yeah, I mean, you'll be, you'll be safe. No one's going to attack you here. You're never going to hear a message from the pulpit that, you know, you're all bad and evil and going to hell, but neither will you be affirmed or celebrated. So they, they ultimately chose to not come because she wasn't willing to put her wife in a position to be hurt like that, like she'd been hurt before. And it broke my heart. It actually is another one of those sort of little, not so gentle <laughs> shoves toward, okay, what are you going to do about this? Like, what is your stand going to be? Are you going to be one of these guys who, who sits by the wayside and tries to dance around the subject? Or are you going to just take your hits if you need to take them? Yeah. Well, you know, to their defense, let's just devil's advocate here. If you're not in a position to be affirming, to be inclusive, then, I mean, I don't want to say that's okay, but I would far better have you take that stand and just save people the the pain and harm of trying to figure it out. Those who, you know, like those raising their children in the church, in the youth group, they spend their whole life in church and then they fall in love and and are devastated when the youth pastor won't marry them. You'd see, I would rather a church stand firm on where they stand than to play. Yeah, I mean, yeah, at least be honest, right? Stop trying to have it both ways, right? You want to speak in language of inclusion, but man, there's just there's just so much there. I, that's why I think it's more dangerous to to be, you know, to be sort of centrist about this and say, well, yeah, we tolerate yeah. Of course, we tolerate. Well, everyone, you know, well, no, but, you know, I keep asking this question of people: Who the hell wants to be tolerated? Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't, I didn't get married and in my vows to my wife say I promise to love, honor, cherish, and tolerate you for the rest of our lives. You know, woohoo! Like that's some sort of landmark <laughs> thing to reach for. <laughs> Maybe I tolerate you. Thank you, I tolerate <laughs> you too. Um, nobody wants that. That's, that's that's a pretty low water mark. Well, even the term "all are welcome here" it doesn't always mean what it says. That's why I'm a firm believer like right. in the symbolism of a, ra- a rainbow flag, a rainbow something, have rainbow, I mean, have, uh, you know, couples share their testimony, anything that you can do that would definitely be on the shadow of a doubt, you know, where you, no one would even have to ask that of you, of your congregation or of your ministry. Yeah, I love it. Hey, before we have to let you go, because we're getting down the road here, um, First of all, I would talk to you for hours. So, man, this is is so good. Um, But we can't let you go without talking about the movie. I'm so excited for you. 
I'm excited too. We have two projects going. Yeah. The first is called the Mama Bear documentary uh, by a director, Jerisha Kai. I'm telling you, I just, this is not public knowledge yet, Woo-hoo! but you can record it by Exclusive. the time. Exclusive. Yeah. You're the first <laughs> to know that I just received a, uh, a rough cut of it and it's very good. And that's going to be on the independent film circuit. Um, it's going to go far and wide to a, just a total different demographic. And then the Jamie Lee Curtis project, we have a script, we've got the green light and there's some details that we're trying to work out, but COVID has just set everything back for two years in a row now. Uh, but Jamie's committed to the project. I have no doubt that it will happen. But gosh, just COVID. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that from so many people. Um, but man, I'm, I, I just, I just love that, um, that you're going to get that kind of exposure. I tell you, I just, I can't believe it myself. So much has happened in the life of, of myself, my family and the uh, free mom hugs organization that I just, I can't even believe it. I just cannot even believe we're, in fact, we're, um, writing a, a second book. I have a first book, how we sleep at night, a mother's memoir, and I'll send you all the stuff. And then uh, a second book. I have a literary agent now, and but it's like we're going to have to narrow it down because there's too much to even write about. Uh, you know what I mean? Like they're having, to, we're picking our twelve top highlights since the thing started, and it's like that's got to be a monumental task. It has been. <laughs> How do you curate that from all? I'm sure the amazing stories you've had. I don't know, but I've had some real highlights, and I've just been so blessed yeah. with the opportunities that I've been given. And the platform and really people just need permission to search the matter out. But I'm just indebted equally to what you're doing and the platform that you offer to your listeners that um, we're just, we're making the world a better place for everyone. So thank you for that. Oh man, we, uh, we are pleased as, <laughs> as punch, as my mama would say, to do, to do the little part that we can, you know, and um, John and I, like we said, from the, from the outset, we have, we have tried to be very intentional about the uh, the kinds of guests that we talk to and the f- kinds of voices that we want to see amplified and given some more exposure to. So it, it breaks my heart to have to end this. I could keep this going for a long time. It's okay. Maybe I'll make it out your way and, and come visit you in church. Yeah. Well, you're not far from me. Yeah. Well, we've got a Free Mom Hugs tour we're planning, so maybe it'll bring us around your way. Ooh, yeah. You should definitely. There's a vibrant community here. Um that would absolutely love and embrace you. Yeah, I'll check it out and just let me know how I can help you in any way. And just God bless you and press in, lean in and just hold on because you are on the right side of history and you are saving lives and don't stop. Don't ever stop. Amen. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.